if I you know, had to identify any single secret sauce for our business, it's culture and structure. Maybe those are two things, but they're so intimately related. We are an amazingly flat company, right? And it's not very hierarchical. Your typical restaurant franchisee, franchise operating business, is like a classic pyramid structure where you got a franchisee sitting on top and then there are layers below them and the whole structure exists to implement what this guy decides and he tells them what to do and they go do it, right? We have a totally different structure. It's a fairly decentralized structure that pushes real authority down as close to the field as we can get it. And we share the wealth very generously down to that level. And think of it as a state and federal model where states are run by sort of state governors. You know, we call them market presidents. They're my partners, right? And we allow, almost encourage, you know, a pretty high level of autonomy because we think local owner operators run the best restaurants and we want them to act like and feel like, and in fact, be local owner operators. But there are very real scale economies in the business. And you have all these above restaurant functions you need to do and you need to do them well. Welcome to Franchise Empires, where aspiring entrepreneurs learn exactly what it takes to become a successful franchise owner from one location to 10 and beyond. I'm the Wolf of Franchises. Hey everyone, it's the Wolf. Today on the show, I have Greg Flynn. Greg Flynn acquired seven Applebee's franchises in 1999. Fast forward to today, and he's the largest franchise owner in the entire world. His company, Flynn Restaurant Group, owns roughly 2,500 locations, including 941 Pizza Huts, 441 Applebee's, 369 Arby's, 283 Taco Bells, 192 Wendy's, and 130 Paneras. This makes Greg Flynn the largest owner in the world of Applebee's, Arby's, and Pizza Hut, the second largest of Panera, the third largest owner of Taco Bell, and the fifth largest of Wendy's. As you can imagine, he's a very busy man, but he was able to give about a half hour of his time to talk franchises with me. This is a conversation I know you'll enjoy, and thanks as always for listening to Franchise Empires. The Wolf of Franchises is the CEO of Wolfpack Franchising, as well as a creator at Workweek Media. All opinions expressed by the Wolf and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Wolfpack Franchising or Workweek. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. The Wolf, Workweek and Wolfpack Franchising may maintain positions in the franchises discussed on this podcast. I think just as a starting point, I mean, you're based in San Francisco. You graduated from Stanford, right? You have an MBA from Stanford, I believe. You're kind of just in the epicenter of tech and this massive boom that started, you know, since the late 90s. Yet in 1999, you bought an Applebee's uh, or, or seven Applebee's, I believe. I mean, why franchises instead of a different career path? Well, you know, it's funny because, uh, well, I didn't, you know, graduate from Stanford and set out to get into the restaurant industry. I started the real estate business and, you know, I got into restaurants almost by accident. But, you know, it's funny, in 99, there were so many of my classmates that were, you know, becoming millionaires on paper with nothing but a 10-page PowerPoint 
you know, describing their next dot com. And I was like, what am I doing? Like, I'm totally missing the train here. But I stuck to my knitting and it turned out to be for the best. You know, lots of the, you know, quick money quickly went away. And, you know, very few of those ventures ended up really, I don't know, getting anywhere and delivering value for, you know, my friends who were involved in them. A few did, but, you know, it's just like all gold rushes. I think, you know, a few people make some money and most don't. Yeah. So, I mean, today you obviously have thousands of franchise locations. Do you try to, and do you own a lot of the real estate on those locations? Well, we've owned hundreds of parcels of real estate over the years, but it's not our objective to sort of make money through the real estate. And so we sell off almost all of it and lease it back. Um, We've done hundreds and hundreds of sale leasebacks. We try not to overburden the business with rent, but I'd rather monetize that way and not, you know, weigh down our balance sheet um, unduly. I am in the real estate business also as a separate business. So it's not like I don't like investing in real estate. I do like investing in real estate, just not that kind of real estate. Like, like I can't add any value to that real estate beyond what I've already done by leasing it, right? Yeah. So if someone's, you know, thinking of buying franchises today, like a common data point and even just narrative that gets thrown out there is how, you know, McDonald's is just big into the real estate game. But obviously, right, they started back in the 1960s. So, you know, for the new franchise owner, is it really realistic, do you think, based on what you've seen with all your locations across the country to find good locations that where you can actually acquire the real estate as well? Or are you seeing mostly just, you know, you're going to be leasing as a tenant? Well, it, it was much easier until the early 2000s. It was common to be able to just go out and buy, you know, an acre, acre and a half or three quarters of an acre, whatever you need. And it would cost you, you know, as little as $200,000 and as much as a million dollars. But, you know, you could then build a restaurant and then sell it and make a profit up front on the real estate. The developers all figured that out. And now they want to be the ones to make that profit, not allowing the restaurant to do it. But not always. I mean, so, you know, I think this year we're, we're going to build in the order of 90 restaurants this year. And I would say, I don't know, probably 25% of them are purchases. So you can do it. It varies regionally. So it's much easier to buy land in the Midwest and the South and even some of the you know mountain states very difficult on the coast. If you can buy them at all, the prices are very high and don't really pencil. So. Gotcha. Okay. Looking back to, you know, when you got your start with acquiring those first Applebee's, I think I know your answer because I'm, you know, uh, a nerd who reads about the history of all these different franchises. But, you know, maybe for the audience who isn't aware, you know, why did you start with Applebee's and kind of what was, if you can set the stage on you know, what kind of brand and business was Applebee's in the late 1990s? Well, in the 90s, you know, casual dining was the hot segment. It was what fast casual is today. And, you know, it was growing and it was, you know, the very first um, sort of casual dining chain was Steak and Ale. And a lot of the chains that followed were alumni of Steak and Ale that sort of spun off and started these things or had been you know, franchisees, or became franchisees in casual dining. But, you know, Applebee's was one of the you know, earlier ones that you know, was founded in 1980. And, you know, from the time of its founding through the 2000s, you know, it never opened less than 100 restaurants a year. I mean, it's super fast growing. And the 
places were packed. You know, they have bars right in the middle of the restaurants. Like it was super fun. And, you know, so when I looked at pivoting away from world wraps, which is where I started toward, you know, sort of major chains that qualified for this sort of hundred percent non-recourse debt. That was my main reason for getting into, you know, major franchises. I, I looked at sort of what brands qualified and you know, most all of the big quick service brands did, but in casual dining, there were only a couple and Applebee's was the best of that. And so, you know, I said, let's get into Applebee's, you know, it's doing really well right now. And, and, you know, it seems to have a good future. You know, it's interesting. I'm very glad we chose Applebee's. It served us very well over the years, but the segment itself has had a lot more challenges than I expected. Applebee's has come out the absolute clear winner and all that. I'm just that glad we didn't pick one of the other ones. You know? What are we talking like uh, chilies or something like that? Chilies, Red Robin. <laughs> okay. um, yeah. You know, Fridays, um, Ruby yeah. Tuesdays. Ah, yeah, Ruby Tuesdays. That was it's a, like a murderer's row of challenge brands, right? <laughs> yeah, it is. You're right. Yeah. All right. So you were effectively able to secure a loan for those initial Applebee's. And maybe, correct me if I'm wrong, non recourse meaning you probably had collateral uh, in the form of property, but they couldn't come after Greg Flynn as an individual and any of your personal assets if, if God forbid, things went bust. Yeah. So just, you know, to clarify, I didn't have any personal assets to speak of back then. So it wouldn't have done him a lot of good. Yeah. But uh, no, it was a crazy moment in time. And it was very like mortgage lending in the 2000s, but where you could borrow all of the price of a major chain restaurant, 100%, where they would even loan you the closing costs. So they'd loan you 102%. And you were buying on an asset basis, meaning, you know, I bought the assets and you kept all the liabilities. And the restaurant industry has negative working capital, meaning you get the cash up front and you pay a lot of the expenses after the fact. So you actually have a cash balance that grows from the second you buy or open a restaurant. So it was an amazing opportunity to buy a restaurant, borrow all the money, and you didn't even need working capital because it filled itself up with working capital right away. Now, that's not true any longer. Now you need to have you know, serious equity in a business. And people have also figured out that, you know, well, I mean, you need serious equity, right? And yeah. if a restaurant is going to trade at, you know, six or seven times, you'll be able to borrow, you know, anywhere between half and two thirds of that, but you got to come up with cash for the rest. Yeah, that's wild to hear that, you know, that was possible back then. And a common question that I got leading up to this conversation was just, hey, if you're starting from scratch today, how would you do it? And it sounds like, I mean, there's not like a, I don't think there's a cookie cutter answer, right? It's just, you kind of got to find a way to have some equity to be able to put up for the business. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think a good way to do that if you're really just starting out from scratch is to find a franchise that you like and vet it, right? And by that, I mean, the best thing you just talk to other franchisees yes. you know, who are in it, have been in it for a while. Franchisees are very collaborative. They'll help you out. They'll tell you the truth. I mean, unless you're somehow going to compete with them and open a store right next door, and then they may try to scare you off. But normally, they're super collaborative and will tell you what's good and what's bad about it, what surprises they had, what are the biggest challenges, op, you know, building the first one, operating it, and then growing from there. And you know, if you still are interested, then you know, go find a loan. There are lots and lots of banks 
that lend in the franchise space. And for whatever is the gap between, you know, the price and your loan, go raise the money from friends and family. And, you know, just do it in chunks of $25,000. And, you know, what I would suggest you do is say, okay, I'm going to, you know, take your money and I'm going to pay you back when I can with a good return. But at the end of the day, I want to own this business. Like, I don't want to give you ownership of what is going to become the rest of my career. And I'll give you a good return, but after you get that return, it's mine. That would be my suggestion to people. Now, definitely. I love that advice. And, and you know, notwithstanding, right, the maybe how opportunistic you were, right, w- with the, the lending standards back then. I mean, you've still had a just ridiculous rise, right? I don't know of a single other franchise owner who's, you know, doing $4 billion in revenue with the breadth and depth of a portfolio. So, you know, what has enabled you to, I guess, just keep growing and keep scaling and really just build out this massive holding company of all these different franchises? Yeah. So first of all, it's not a holding company. It's an operating company. Okay. And we have different divisions aligned with our brands, but this is not a passive investment for us. Like I view myself as a restaurant operator and everyone on our team does. That's what we do all day, every day. So the... The starting point and the necessary, if not sufficient, condition for succeeding in the franchise restaurant business, and I'm sure this is true in all businesses, is running your operations well each and every day. So everything we do prioritizes that. I mean, nothing comes ahead of it. And if anything interferes with it, we need to stop doing that thing so we can focus on, on like running our restaurants well day in and day out. And if you do that you know, that will greatly enable your growth because you'll have profits and you can reinvest those profits and do it in the growth. And, you know, basically our business, I got into it, as I told you, by borrowing pretty much all of the money to do it. But then ever since then, with just a little bit of exceptions, we've grown the entire business from additional debt and cash flow, reinvested cash flow. So we've taken basically no money out of the business over the years. We've reinvested it all. But as the business has grown and become more profitable and we've built you know, new units and we've bought other you know, businesses accretively, it's thrown off a lot of profits that you can borrow against. Right? So you reinvest the cash flow that you have, but also you continue to borrow more and more against your own business. And that provides sort of the equity for the acquisitions where you can borrow against the thing you're buying, right? but you're also borrowing your equity against your existing business. Yeah. That's how the the flywheel spins, right? And you can, the whole thing becomes self-financing. That's incredible. But you need to get in at that first time. You know? Yeah. Has there ever been a moment where, you know, maybe you thought you were a little over levered or in an unpredictable event, maybe hit the dining segment? Was there ever a moment where you felt like it could all come crashing down or has it been, I don't want to say smooth sailing because I'm sure there's always things that happen. It's never a smooth ride, but... Yeah. Is there anything in your head that sticks out? Yeah. So there have been lots of moments (laughs) like that. And, you know, let's just first go back to how I got in the restaurant business, a concept called World Wraps. I didn't start it, but a friend of mine, Keith Cox, did. And uh, And was that a franchise? Well, kind of. You know, (laughs) they started it coming out of Stanford. He was my classmate. And I made like a little limited partner investment in it. And the first one opened and there were lines around the block and we're 
jumping up and down. Oh, sure, we've got Starbucks on our hand, right? And so the thing that we became totally focused on was how do we build as many as we can as fast as we can before someone steals our idea? Very stupid looking back at it, but you know that's what we did. And so we shook hands. I, I just, in my real estate business, bought three buildings up in Seattle. And so we just shook hands and said, I'll develop Seattle while he developed San Francisco. And I did it as a licensee, so sort of a franchisee. He kept the IP, but there were no franchise services. You know, there was no, you know, here's how you do it. Like we were figuring out this together at the same time. He had opened one restaurant, <laughs> you know. So I opened 14 of those and it was the most bootstrapped thing you've ever seen in your life. You know, leasing mostly former restaurant spaces, trying to convert them and slap a little lipstick on them and make them look like a world rock star. <laughs> and so you say, were there ever any moments of crisis? And I'd say every two weeks was a crisis, like making payroll every two weeks. Like, where's the money coming from? And, you know, we were constantly just robbing from Peter to pay Paul. But, you know, we, we sort of got it done. And you know, it was, you know, a sort of meaningfully profitable business by the time 1999 came around and I decided to pivot toward Applebee's. Not that it was, you know, making a lot of money, but it wasn't, you know, to the point where I was like, oh my God, we're going to, this whole thing's falling apart. And so that was the regular crisis. I got into Applebee's and things became less crisis filled because it's such a great business. And th that's the great learning here is that if you join an established proven brand, generally that means a mature brand with thousands of units that have been successful everywhere, every geography, every demographic, you know, through multiple economic cycles, your life is much easier. Right? Everything about it is easier, you know? And so the frequency of crises, you know, was greatly reduced from 1990 onward. But there were moments, I mean, the most recent one is obvious, it was COVID, you know, when the week of March 13th, came around and, you know, we went from doing 100 in revenue down to 12 in revenue, you know, in three days. And I went from having, you know, 40,000 employees down to having, I don't know, 8,000 employees. I mean, we didn't lay anyone off, but we did furlough. Yeah. yeah. 27,000 people, something like that in five days. That felt like I was a dinosaur looking at the comet. Yeah. <laughs> Holy crap. Like, and, you know, the restaurant industry, utterly depends on daily revenues to stay alive. You know, we, it's a very high volume, but low margin business. So if those revenues dry up, you know, the expenses keep ticking away and you're out of cash really, really fast. So we had to make some tough decisions very, very quickly, sort of prioritize who we were paying and what we were gonna support. Now we made the right decision to keep all our restaurants open and to not lay off anyone, but to furlough those for whom we just had literally no need for that moment, all making the bet that we were going to come back, that this was going to pass, we were going to survive, you know, and we'd want those people back. And we didn't want our customers to think we were closed, you know, um, and those were the right decisions. You know, something like 10% of all restaurants never reopened from the pandemic. Mostly those were full service restaurants and mostly those were restaurants who made the wrong two big decisions to stay open and to furlough versus lay off. Like if you closed for almost any amount of time and you laid off, like, so, you know, you had to hire people back to real, that was expensive and hard. Yeah. 
And that's why so many didn't make it, right? Wow. I can't even imagine what that must have felt like. You own some, I mean, Applebee's, Arby's, Wendy's, Pizza Hut, you know, some massive brands, right? Have there been any that you want to get into, you know? Don't forget Panera and Taco Bell. Panera and Taco Bell, yeah, exactly. Two of my six favorites. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, have there been any that, like, over the years you were close to buying but didn't? Do you even, at your scale, I mean, it's like a big decision for a franchisor, right? For someone to kind of let someone with the just the capitalization you have and... I mean, you can really influence a system almost with how big of a company you have. So yeah, have there been close calls like with brands? No, so I, think, I think that's correct. You said you can influence the system. I, I think that's correct. And I, I know franchisors worry about, you know, franchisees are really of any size, but especially big ones being a negative influence. We're very aware of that. And we are dedicated to being a positive influence and a force for good, right? At our scale, we can be a force, but let's be a force for good. And I'd like to think that, you know, over time we have proved that that's what we are. You know, anyone getting into the business, and especially as they get scale, everyone in this industry talks a big game, right? I mean, it's easy to say we're collaborative, we invest in our people, we invest in our assets. Ultimately, we all should be, in, and we are judged by what we do versus what we say. And we now for nearly 25 years have been doing this business a certain way. And that certain way is, I think, the way that franchisors would like us to do it. I mean, we invest in our people and our assets and we run our restaurants well. We're also very, very collaborative and totally dedicated to never fighting with any of our franchisors and not undermining them publicly or privately and just being symbiotic support partners because that's what we ultimately all are at the end of the day. So I think that has gone a long way over time. There are just enough references I can give now yeah. of franchisors who would say, listen, you should not worry about them entering your system. You should be glad they're entering because they will be a force for good in your system. Okay. Given how closely you work with franchisors, and obviously you've just operated multiple different concepts from casual dining to fast food, right? Like, have you ever thought like, let's start our own franchise and be the franchisor, or are you just, it, why is the being a franchisee, I guess, so appealing versus starting something of your own? So I'm not sure I would ever start something of my own because I think that's super risky. That's what we were doing effectively with World Wraps. I mean, technically started, but like from store number two onward, I was there. And yeah, like, that's a risk adjusted return that I don't find attractive. So I'm not going to do that. That's why we belong only to, you know, we're franchisees of only mature, proven brands. I think that's the better risk-adjusted return that I'm seeking. We have, you know, occasionally looked at proprietary brands you know, to buy and grow from there. And never say never, that may be something that we do, but we'll be very slow to do it because it's not what we've done before. And we've, you know, enjoyed success doing what we've been doing. And so, you know, the safest thing we can do, as long as it continues to have ample opportunity for us, is to keep doing what we've been doing. So that's it. You know, there's so much opportunity we've always had just being franchise operators that I haven't yet felt a need to sort of go beyond that to proprietary. That makes sense. Oh, there's one other thing. Yeah. I like being a franchise operator. I really do. Like, if I had to choose, and I have chosen, right? Yeah. yeah. 
I have chosen to be a franchisee versus a franchisor, even now that we're in a position to maybe become a franchisor if we wanted to. Yeah. You know, we each play a role, right? The whole franchise model divides and conquers. You know, what they do really matters a lot. You know, it's marketing and menu and prototype development. And usually they have some role in supply chain. And, you know, these things all matter, and training materials, these things all matter a lot and they help us. But the thing that matters most, as I was saying earlier, is just running your restaurants well. And that's under my control. Yep. Like, you know, in this arrangement, I control the thing that matters the most to my success. And this allows me to focus entirely on that. And I think that's really a big part of our success is someone else has been taking care of the distractions of marketing and menu, all these things that matter, just so I could be totally focused on what we are charged with doing. And focus makes you better. Yeah, for sure. You're right. I mean, you do have kind of, uh, it is up, right? The franchisee has the control of their store and to do what they can with it. So I uh, definitely agree with that. And have you ever, you know, it sounds like just that your experience with the world wraps has certainly, you know, played a role in kind of how you've grown since then. Did you choose though restaurant to operate restaurants and do you enjoy that versus you know there's franchises in dozens of industries you know there's big fitness you know planet fitness is a franchise have you ever considered going outside of the restaurant world or or is it just i mean at this point i'm sure you're kind of laser focused but at any point did you think of adding a different type of brand there no so focus makes you better we very deliberately decided when we got an applebee's to do nothing but applebee's until we we're really good at it. Like we wanted to be kind of the category killer in, in Applebee's. And so we did nothing but that for 12 years and we got bigger, but we also got very good. And I can't even take the credit for it, but you know, our longtime, you know, president of that brand for us, Dan Kresbach and I, by the way, still, we're still together 23 years later. And in fact, he's right in my office at the moment, but <laughs> you know, we got really freaking good at that. And it was only in 2011 that we said, okay, let's take the experience we have. Let's take the platform, the capital, now capital, you know, the team and do more with it. And that's when we decided to diversify into other brands. You know, we made a decision to sort of let the market tell us what it wanted, right? By mirroring the composition of the industry, right? We made a decision to get into quick service because that's 60, 70% of all restaurants. Like who are we to say what people want? That's what people want, right? And then, you know, a small but meaningful, fast casual segment in between. And so that set off a 10 year journey to diversify in the restaurant industry as a franchise operator. So we've now done that. It is logical for us to now think about the next 10 years. What does that hold for us? And we've got some growth channels that are obvious, like just growing in our existing brands, becoming a franchisee in new restaurant brands. You know, international is another one. You know, it's interesting. There are restaurant franchisees around the world that are, you know, pretty large. Yeah. All of them operate in multiple countries. And we're the only one that operates in only one country. Now, it's a great country. And it's had ample opportunity. So why go elsewhere? But like, people make a lot of money in a lot of other countries. And I think we can too. So we'll look at that. But then there's, you know, well, the, the adjacent industries that are franchised also, right? Outside of restaurants, but fitness is one of them. There are 
home services, there's health and beauty, there's hospitality. And we should be and we are looking at all of those right now. You know, again, I'll be a little bit slow because it's not what we've been doing, but I think it is something we could do. In fact, most of those are probably easier to operate in well than the restaurant industry. And I think just like that 2011 moment, 11 years ago, we can say we can take our team and our capital and our platform and our experience and do it in some other industry. So, so we are actively looking at all of that right now. Very cool. I'll be looking for some press releases there. Huh? <laughs> Well, you're going to get a big press release on Monday. Really? Uh, okay. Yep, yep. So look for that. I will. Um, it's in an adjacent industry, and it's one of the biggest deals of the year in it. So. Wow. All right. Sweet. Yeah, <laughs> I'll have my Google Alerts set there then. That's good to hear. I'm sure you get asked this a lot. It's just the size of your company, and you're still privately held. I know, obviously, there's benefits to being privately held. Have you ever thought about going public, or is that just not in the roadmap for you? Well, sure. I mean, I've thought about it and we are very unlikely to go public now or ever for two reasons. One, I've got a bunch of franchise agreements that say I won't go public. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. so I'd have to, you know, convince our franchisors that it was actually in our interest and theirs that we go public. That probably would just have to do with access to capital. You know, for some reason, the private markets weren't providing enough access and for us to continue to build restaurants and things we needed it. But the other reason people go public are several. One is access to capital. And we have no shortage of access to capital being private, both debt, mainly debt, but also equity. You know, those are very, very deep markets for good companies. Two, people uh, wish to have sort of stock-based compensation and share equity ownership with their employees in a way that provides them some liquidity and, and a value benchmark. That's very legitimate. Like that's the most legitimate reason I think to go public. And that's something that would be attractive to us, but like we're gonna have to forego unless until we did. But probably the main reason people take their companies public other than access to capital they don't other have, otherwise have is because they have a CEO that wants to, you know, have taken a company public and wants to run a public company. And that's not what I wanna do. Okay. <laughs> you know what? I, really like being private and public companies throw up all sorts of, you know, sort of perverse incentives to, you know, have a very short-term focus. And we have always had a very, very long-term focus and it's really benefited us. Yeah. And, you know, while I would love quarterly results to be good, I'd sacrifice them all day long for the five-year or 10-year outcome. And so that's the main reason we're very unlikely to go, uh, go public ever. That makes sense. Yeah. And I feel like some of the bigger names in public companies, whether it's, you know, uh, Warren Buffett or Jamie Dimon, there was someone recently, there's like almost like a growing petition to stop with the quarterly earnings reports. Cause it's just, it, like you said, it just yeah. causes this mindset that is too short term. And ultimately it's actually not in the best interest of the companies or the stakeholders, right. To, to be thinking that way. Well, uh, one more question that I'm curious about before we wrap up here is just, with how big your organization is, and you know, I'm not asking for the secret sauce here, but like, do you have any, have you guys done anything like in-house, whether it's technology or something that's proprietary to Flynn Restaurant Group that has maybe been a part of the success? If I, you know, had to identify any single secret sauce for our business, it's culture and structure. Maybe those are two things, but they're so intimately related. We are an amazingly flat company. 
What do you mean by that? Right. And it's not very hierarchical. Your typical restaurant franchisee, franchise operating business, is like a classic pyramid structure where you got a franchisee sitting on top and then there are layers below them and the whole structure exists to implement what this guy decides and he tells them what to do and they go do it, right? We have a totally different structure. It's a fairly decentralized structure that pushes real authority down as close to the field as we can get it. And we share the wealth very generously down to that level. And think of it as a state and federal model where states are run by sort of state governors. You know, we call them market presidents. They're my partners. Yeah. Right. And we allow, almost encourage, you know, a pretty high level of autonomy because we think local owner operators run the best restaurants and we want them to act like and feel like, and in fact, be local owner operators. But there are very real scale economies in the business. And you have all these above restaurant functions you need to do and you need to do them well. And that's, you know, HR, IT, purchasing, finance, real estate, training. I mean, there's just a bunch of stuff you need to do. And think of that as the federal level in our state and federal model. You know, we do that for our restaurants and we do it probably better at a lower cost because of the scale and the people we can attract as a result of the scale to provide just world-class services. And, you know, this all sounds like pretty simple, but it's pretty complicated to do and you need to be really devoted to it. And in our case, it really wouldn't work if we hadn't grown up organically like that over 25 years, you know? I hear you. I'm sure that the act, yeah, like if I saw an org chart, the structure would obviously be, uh, it wouldn't be super simple just to think up, but just a theme I've noticed, you know, I think the biggest franchise owner I've had on before you owned about 140 Orange Theories, and then he's building uh, a dog daycare brand as well. But just the themes of, you know, the most successful owners seem to be that the people underneath them have skin in the game, whatever their management structure is, there's always just a way to really incentivize the people and empower them, right, to, you know, want to take ownership of their role and whatever locations are under their, you know, jurisdiction, so to speak. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Well, look, Greg, this was uh, awesome to have you on. I'm glad you got forwarded that Twitter thread a while ago. But um, yeah, I know, uh, folks, normally we plug the website or social media profile. Greg's made the very smart decision to not have any of those. But if you do want to check out his website of his company and all the brands he owns, flynnrestaurantgroup.com. Well, uh, yeah. So thanks again, Greg. And uh, hopefully we can uh, talk soon. Thank you, Wolf. Take care. Bye. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Franchise Empires. We're coming to you soon with actionable insights to take the next step on your franchise journey. So make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen. 